This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. This week, my guest is Anthony Abraham Jack, a native of Miami. He is a junior fellow and assistant professor at Harvard and author of the book, The Privileged Poor, How Elite Colleges Are Failing Disadvantaged Students. His research on higher education and disadvantaged students illustrates the reality that access is not inclusion. In this episode, he shares his personal experience as a first-generation college student that brought him to this research and the impact it's having on the education system, especially amidst COVID-19. Tony's work has shown me some of the blind spots that I have, and what he discusses in this episode may do the same for you. Ubuntu is the philosophy that highlights our common humanity and the idea that we are all interconnected. If you want to know more about Ubuntu, I invite you to pick up a copy of my book, Everyday Ubuntu, Living Better Together, The African Way. Tony, welcome to Everyday Ubuntu. Um, Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have you. I was like devouring everything that you had written this week. Um, And so I want to start by asking you a question that I ask everyone. Okay. My mom says that our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And so I want to start by asking you what is missing from your resume that people should definitely know about you. Oh, man. I, I I love that question because so much of life now is if it's not on Instagram or Facebook, it's not real. Mm-hmm. Um, let alone if it's not on your CV, it's not worth, uh, it's not a matter of worth. And so in my work, I do a lot of mentoring and advising, and that is not on your 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 resume um, or CV. And I, I start there because I think that that also speaks to who I am and how I connect with my family. I've always been um, a person who likes to not necessarily take care, but who cares about the care of others, mm-hmm. who cares about how people are doing, who cares about, you know, it inspires my work, it inspires my relationships with so many people around me. Like I, I don't want to see people suffer or do things that they don't necessarily have to do to make it. And I, I bring that into how I connect with people in my job, but also, you know, I've been so much a part of undergraduate life since I've graduated that I love connecting with students. I love seeing their growth. I love getting that text message saying, hey, Tony, I got my first credit score, right? Just even those moments like that. Um, but some of the things that like are even less professional per se that I that are not on my resume, you know, I'm a knitter, right? I just oh, I we, started- I want, we are gonna talk about the knitting. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I started knitting three years ago, um, and it has been an amazing journey. It has introduced me to a number of people who I would never have crossed paths with and right. and really allowed me to center myself and take time to be present in the moment. Because when you are knitting, you can either be intensely um, focused on, you know, your knits and your pearls and your loops, or you can actually get to a point where you are able to multitask. But you, but I found myself learning better and being able to pay more attention to other things when I was knitting because it grounded me in a way that I had never experienced before. Um, I'm an uncle. That's one of probably the one of my favorite titles in the world. Um, I love my nieces and nephews, um, and 
you know, right now I FaceTime them every day and mm-hmm. mess with them and help them do their homework when they when they call me and things like that. And the last thing I would say is uh, I'm trying to learn how to cook for real, for real. <laughs> what are you working on right now? Uh, so I am kind of getting more and more comfortable with the cast iron skillet. That is something that I've been, especially for the last for the last year, um, my cast iron skillet skills have been quite improving. So whether I'm cooking different cuts of steak, chicken, um, um, my salmon is really good. So just like okay. things, <laughs> things like that. And you know, I realize that just you know different ways of being creative. And sometimes I feel starved in my work if I'm just focusing on work too long. That when I start to try to be creative with you know, with knitting, with how I reach out to people, with what I'm cooking and how I'm cooking it and adjusting recipes. Um, it it feeds it I, I feel I feel even more of a whole person again. And I'm reminded to to never let that go. And so so to return to your question, there are things that are outside of my resume, my C V is my love for knitting, my love for learning, especially learning how to cook. Mm-hmm and connecting with other people. I mean, love for learning and connecting with other people, high on my list. So and I think we I think we can get along. Um, Indeed. I, uh, I want to know, you know, when you were a young kid in Miami, what did you want to be when you were older? Did you want to be a professor? Absolutely not. Didn't even know. Um, the only professor I knew growing up was Professor Xavier from X-Men. Uh, (laughs) and so i i did not you know as a as a first generation college student Mm -hmm. um you know my mom d you know to show how we are still so closely connected to his quote-unquote historical moments that are so far away my mom desegregated her middle school right so when you think about how close the past is um you know, and she actually is a security guard at the middle school that she desegregated. And my brother's a, my brother's a janitor at the at my old elementary school and at the hospital that we all go to if we have to go to the hospital. And so we, you know, high school was at finish line for people in my neighborhood and people growing up. There was no real thought about college unless you were an athlete. Mm-hmm. And I did go to school with some people who became professional athletes. But there was really no thought about like what academic life was. And so, but when you are that smart black person, um, you will either be a lawyer or a doctor, right? Between the civil rights movement and just the access to a middle-class life as a doctor, those are the two things that kind of stepped in your mind. And so even when I went to Amherst College, which is where I did my undergrad degree, I was pre-med because I was good at science, I was good at math, and I was on the path to follow somebody else's dream. And then I realized that was someone else's dream. Like I did not envision myself being that the white coat, right? That white mm-hmm. coat ceremony was not part of my vision. I have friends who who have been thoughts of being a lawyer, I mean a lawyer or a judge all their life. I have friends who've been thought, thinking about doctors since they were, you know, elementary school and they've been shadowing people. That was never my life. Um, and so I didn't have a I didn't have a clear picture. And to be honest with you, I'm kind of glad I didn't. Right. Because when I got to Amherst, 
and took classes that were just so different. My freshman seminar was science and gender. My freshman elective was religion 11. And I got introduced to concepts and theories and ideas that quite frankly, I had never considered, or I was so, I had inherited a viewpoint that was not, if not contradicting those that were just, that caused some friction. And for the first time I thought about gender norms. I thought about the difference between, you know, um, gender and sex, right? Um, mm -hmm. And meaning, you know, you know, sex is in biological category more so than gender as a routine accomplishment of one sex category. Just, just like, and I was like, well, you know what? That's in that, you know, like the difference between being a man and masculine, being a woman and feminine, and 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 how one is the you know, a social science favorite word, a social construct, and one is actually more rooted in biology. Just like even thinking about it, it opened something in me. It, it made me really rethink a lot of the inherited knowledge that I, I had, but more so than saying like, oh, well, there are more points of view. I began to able to think about those multiple points of view and my, and then that thinking, that process of my mind being open, my, my worldview being expanded, I was hooked. I started taking political science classes, history, more religion, more women's gender studies, more English. I mean, the first time I read James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, and and other and other people in the college setting, it was it was it was revolutionary for me. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really glad that I didn't come in so fixed that I didn't allow myself to explore and grow. Right. Well, so you you spoke about the classes and how they opened your mind. But I also know that you, you know, I've done some talks where you speak about your experience being a first generation college student. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you can sort of talk about that and how that experience shaped you and brought to where you to where you are now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's I have such a strong class identity because sometimes I felt to think about other things was a luxury. When you are worried about where your next meal is coming from, a lot of your other identities, you know, almost feel elective. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in a certain way because I got to college and then I realized how race made that possible, made that harsh reality that much more harder to live because of racist policies like redlining and blockbusting and, the, and, the, and who has access to the GI Bill and FHA loans and all of those things. It made me aware of that. But being first gen, being in environments where people have this code, this knowledge that you don't have and look down upon you for not having the exact same experiences, right? When you don't know the hidden curriculum, those that system of unwritten rules and unset expectations that if you were born into it, it becomes part of who you are, right? You, and it, it goes beyond what forks to use or you know, you know how to behave at a multi-course dinner. It goes to the very thing of how do you send an email, how do you interact with a professor, how, what's a dean, what's a fellowship. You know, because like when I got to Amherst, I, I, I tell people this. When I got to Amherst, I thought it was a much more religious institution because everybody kept talking about fellowship. And for me, I was like, fellowship. Fellowship means Sunday, Sunday morning slash mid afternoon. You at church and you about to go eat. It's one of the two or both. 
Right. They were talking about Rhodes, Marshall, Bainley, right. all these like, oh, I'm going to Oxford next year because I'm really, really smart and I apply for this thing. Right. So that that the very coded language of being first gen uh, or sorry, the very coded language makes be, being first gen a even more salient piece of my identity. But also the struggle. Right. It's not just about the, you know, you know, in the social codes, it's also about basically just being broke. And no, not all first gens are low income. I mean, look at Blue Ivy, right? Technically, if I'm not mistaken, she's first gen. Neither, <laughs> neither Beyonce nor Jay went to college, but she is far from broke, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not trying to, and, 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 and being facetious, but at the same time, I'm not saying that all first gens are low income, but the two are correlated, especially when you compare them to your middle, to, to, when you when both of your parents have been to a four-year institution and ha- or even higher um, higher degrees. And so for me, it was also the struggle of being the first one out. I still had to send, so even though I was fulfilling a dream that my family had had, had dared to have for years of me going to college, that did not stop me having to take on additional responsibilities when I did go. Because I became even more the financial crutch, even though I was less of a drain on them because I was no longer there. I was the person who always had to send money home mm-hmm. to hear those calls when someone got shot or was a victim of violence. That totally upended my day at Amherst. And so it was like learning how to navigate this new world. And now fortunately for me, because I went to... Um, Gulliver Preparatory in Miami for one year during my senior year, I got a I got a crash course in elite schools. Mm-hmm. But even that crash course didn't dull the effect of getting a phone call at three o'clock in the morning saying, oh, so-and-so just got killed. Yeah. I mean, or, how can anything do that? Yeah. And in this, the sad, the sad part about it is you almost become, you develop skills to deal with it, to cope with it. And that's something that a lot of your white peers don't have to do. Um, a lot of your um, upper middle class and middle class peers have to do much less, if at all. And so they are. So when I think about first gen, I think about those two things. But also, as I started this, I also I don't want to I don't want to dwell just on negative. I also think about the possibility of being first gen, mm-hmm. right? Because it's like that thrill of learning how to ride a bike. The first couple of times when you are scared out of your mind and you fall and you cry and you get pissed off and you, and you get angry and you get frustrated. But when you start to learn how to ride after the training reels come off and then when you learn how to ride without using your hands and you get to just like let, you know, just like let your hands hang down on the side, all of a sudden you are now riding with friends and you all have your spot, right? It get, there's, there's joy. There's pure joy in being a first gen, even in the midst of the struggles and the obstacles that are in place when the universities have extended invitations to you, but have not prepared for your, your arrival. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is, everything you're saying to me seems so obvious. Even the fellowship thing, something I didn't think about, but then you hear and you're like, oh, of course, like why Why did we not think about that? And it, it's weird because 
this seems like it was even a blind spot to me, even though I had a single mother who struggled to provide for me to go to private schools and boarding school. And so I'm thinking if this is sort of a blind spot for me, how do we bring this reality to the forefront of other people's minds? Mm. Yeah. Um, the thing, one of the reasons why I wrote the book the way that I did, and in general, all my research, because I have a rule, um, and it's a little colloquial, but if <laughs> my rule is, if my mama can't read it, I don't want to write it. Mm. I am not trying to write in an overly wordy, verbose, jargony, only if you have a PhD can you understand this sort of way. Right. I think that's how we got into trouble, into the trouble that we're in right now. The backlash, not, not the sole reason, right? There's a whole bunch of racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, all that kind of stuff like that. But also part of it is, I think the academy has sometimes spoken only to itself, right? Fact, you know, like research, oh, if you don't have an MD, I'm not sure if I can break this down for you. But now people are actually asking questions, what's a vaccine? when vaccines have been around for a very long time and part of our everyday thing, but now so many people are don't even know about the things that are right next right next to you and the possibility of saving you. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I, I make it upon take it upon myself to also write in a very, very um, digestible and accessible way that a professor, a principal, or a parent can pick up my work and each one of them not only leave understanding the material, but fundamentally being able to have action items at the end of it. And so there are a lot of things that we need to do to demystify the hidden curriculum. Again, those unsaid rules and unwritten expectations. But also I think it means fundamentally a shift in higher education is anyone who reads my work, I want them to leave asking a question of themselves. What else have I taken for granted? Because if we can begin to get people to realize that their position in society, alongside their privileges and what and 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 also what they have not done, shapes their worldview, and not everyone has that, not everyone has had the opportunity to go to Andover and Exeter for right. all of their education, and then go to Harvard or Yale. And then you just expect everybody to have the same kind of four-year New England residential experience and have the same, um, you know, shorthand and nicknames and, and for everything. That's just not how it works. The sad part about it is that's what that's what happens when you apply to schools, when you apply to jobs. So that kind of cultural matching is like a gatekeeping mechanism. And so I don't have. So you know, I think if we take time to really respond to those moments of saying like, hey, you keep saying office hours, but you never say what office hours are. Right. You always say when they are, but you never say what they are. Let's take time to take a step back and go back to basics. And I hope that my work invites people to do that because a lot of things that people just take for granted because they've been doing it for 20 years, they're like, oh, Okay, I haven't. I I have no idea. Like I have right. no idea that um that you didn't understand this. I've had people come up to me and say I've been teaching math for twenty five years, and I have never, never thought to 
define office hours because people just automatically showed up. And it wasn't until I read your book till I realized that everyone who just showed up without ask, me asking them or making it mandatory were mostly students from a single race and a single background. Yeah. So what are you thinking of the students that don't show up? Right. But the, here's the problem. The students who don't show up, they automatically assume they're showing up because they don't need the help mm-hmm. or they don't want it, which is actually mm-hmm. the worst because the students who would benefit the most from it are the most, the ones who are least likely to go and get it. Right. So then you mentioned your book, um, The Privileged Poor, and there are two terms in it that I wonder if you could explain for my listeners, doubly disadvantaged and then the privileged poor. Yes. So when I got to graduate school and I started reading about how people discuss the experience of lower income families, lower income youth, especially as it pertains to college, they wrote about students as if they were a monolith, as if they were a single group of, and I'm quoting here, of students at risk. That was literally how people talked about all and like lumping all first generation college students together. But here's the thing. In my research, mine was the first to show that colleges were hedging their bets. They were diversifying their colleges, but they were getting their new diversity from old sources. And so my research was the first to show that one half of the lower income black students at elite schools and one third of the lower income Latinx students at elite schools were actually the alumni of boarding day and preparatory high school, like Andover, Hackley, Thatcher, right? Boarding schools and day schools in the country that cost $55,000 a year, Mm -hmm. starting in middle school. There are some schools in the country where elementary school costs $50,050 a year, right? These are schools that the top 1% send their kids. These are the schools that royalty in other country send their children to study in the U.S. And so, The privileged poor are lower income students in college who are the alumni of these boarding and prep schools. Privileged poor is an oxymoron, and that was purposeful. One, the alliteration stuck with me, right? So it's, (laughs) you know, um, but it forces you to question something. How can someone be both poor and privileged? If we only focus on their economic capital, they don't have any, but their social and cultural capital, they have a lot, mm-hmm. right? They know they, they know what office hours are. They've studied abroad. A number of my students who were experienced homelessness in high school, who whose parents um, didn't work, who um, lived off of government aid, had studied abroad in high school because their school gave them opportunities to do so. So they were privileged in the sense they had the academic and social experiences of the top 1% through their schools. The double disadvantage are those lower income students in college who come from local, typically distressed public schools. The reason why I chose the term doubly is because it inspires an intersectional way of thinking when there previously wasn't one. We want to label first generation college students as problems. No. They have difficult times because of the gap between their high schools and college. That's what the problem is. 
it's the it's their doubly advantage because they don't have the economic capital, but they also don't have the social and cultural experiences. So I will, I use the term to draw attention to how colleges have been catering to a middle class set of norms and orientations for years, and it, and it gets and it gets richer and wider the more elite the school is, and that hurts the very students that you are somehow quote unquote recruiting. Both terms pushes back against that lumping together of lower income and first generation college student, but it does something more. It draws attention to how entrenched inequalities shape how students move to and through higher education. I'm talking about poverty. I'm talking about joblessness. I'm talking about segregation. I'm talking about the $29 billion difference in funding between predominantly white and predominantly non-white school districts in this country. I'm talking about how all of those inequalities that students didn't choose, but rather they were born into, shape how they move through the college experience. Because it's not about blaming the individual students. It's about right. how poverty and inequality in this country that we are okay with letting run wild shape even the experience of even the best and brightest. So I have a question for that because, so you're speaking about the inequality and I think if anyone has not just been blown in the face by it this year, then they, they didn't want to know. But I think COVID brought that so much to the forefront on in every aspect of life, especially when it came to universities. I went to American in DC and you know they were sending out a lot of emails and information telling us what was happening with the students. And and of course, finally discussing how students couldn't go home and if there were ways that we could help them. And so I'm wondering if you think in the long term, maybe COVID will bring about some needed change when it comes to inequality on college campuses. COVID is that unerring mirror reflecting back upon America is true nature. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that some people don't close their eyes and continue to turn a blind eye to what's happening. Colleges and universities were forced in ways that they have not since the world wars to realize what their students are going through. Mm -hmm. There are so many colleges in the country right now, college presidents. And, and the thing is, when I wrote this book in 2000, like I did this interviews in 2013, 14 and 15, and the book came out in 2019. So, you know, everything had to be done. So this was like pre pandemic, pre everything. I never thought a book on first-generation college students would be would become a blueprint and a framework for college presidents during a pandemic. But because it it it, it got people to think, what are the struggles and the hurdles of active engagement and inclusion in higher education that some schools who had been using my work as a as a guide were better prepared to help students because my work talks about food insecurity. Because even if you go to Harvard and Yale, that does not mean, that doesn't preclude you from experiencing food insecurity during a semester. Food insecurity meaning not knowing where your next meal is coming from. Because it shut down during spring break. But all of a sudden due to the pandemic, when you shut down campus for the entire semester, all of a sudden you have to ask yourself, are my students eating? Do my, do my students have a place to go to when we close our doors? 
That's why when every college president who reached out to me, I said, if you do close, which I believe you should close, make sure you remain partially open to students who do not have a home to go to or for whom home and harm are synonymous. Because when we begin to pay attention to our most vulnerable, we can then enact policies to help all of our students in a more effective way. And so, yes, COVID is going to tax us in ways that we have never been taxed before. But I am hopeful that the, the growing pains and the lessons learned will forever change how we think about what it means to support students. Because right now, I'm pushing colleges that we need to lobby much more effectively and much harder for internet access to be treated as a utility, not a luxury. Too many of our students from K through 12 and higher education are living in that deserts. Think about how many students have, and I did this at myself. If I needed to do, use the internet, I had to go to the Starbucks or the McDonald's and sit outside mm. or go inside. How many students now had to take the SAT while sitting in not good weather outside of an internet hotspot, exposing themselves to the virus if they didn't have masks? We need universities who are tracking this, who are studying this, to also be to also say, hey, Congress, hey, senators, hey, president, hey, everybody, we need to actually fundamentally change the way people have access to um, the very fundamental things of society. It's no longer about heat, water, and electricity. What about internet? This isn't about accessing Netflix. This is about Zoom and Google Meets and all these places that universities, schools, high schools, middle schools, organizations, doctors are using to do their job. And so I hope we deal with the pain of COVID, but that I hope that pain doesn't make us lose sight of the lessons that, that we could potentially learn. I mean, I'm going to do my part to, to not just remind universities of this, but also lay out a plan for how we could actually move, move in a way that should this happen again, mm -hmm. Not necessarily a global pandemic, but an economic crisis, a something, um, a something. When that begins to happen, that something, whatever it is, we are not scrambling to help students. We are prepared to help students. Right. I know you've said um, access is an inclusion. So what what does this true inclusion look like? Yeah, I uh it's funny, I, I reached out to a, a, an artist and we were talking about how that saying has become really how I approach all, you know, how I approach all my work. I didn't realize that that would be not catchphrase, but like my stamp on my work. <laughs> is, access is about who you admit or who you hire, basically who you let in at whatever level. Mm -hmm. But inclusion is about accessing all the rights and privileges pertaining to that admission, right? It's about when you get your student ID and you say that the campus is fully open to you, is it really? Or do I have to know a secret code or come from a certain family to be able to access all the really good parts? 
am I on the VIP list to get in or do I have to wait outside and just look on and off about all the good things that are going on at the university or the high school or the job? So for me, true inclusion looks like everyone, regardless of background, accessing mental health services, accessing student uh, employment offices, um, accessing study abroad without feeling excluded because they don't feel like they can be there. True inclusion means citizenship unrestricted. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to me. And it, and, it, and it comes in different ways, right? The specific examples of, I feel comfortable going to office hours. I know what they are because my professor told me it's expected of me to ask for help. I think of help seeking as a strength, like very specific, but then also, what does it mean when we can grant a student access to a place and in the four to six years that it takes them to navigate it, that when they get to graduation, they don't limp across barely covering the barely making it to the finish line, but they make it to graduation whole and healthy, ready for the next adventure. Right. Like what goes into making that a reality? Well, I love your your research and your work. And I'm wondering, you know, you said the next adventure. I'm wondering in difficult moments or times, what sort of sustains you and keeps you going and, and continuing this work that you do? The students. A hundred percent. I love them. Like the students who I come across, whether they are texting me at two o'clock in the morning um, because they want me to moderate a panel <laughs> or they're getting mad at me because I came to their city and didn't tell them enough advance so that we can go to dinner. Uh, I do my work for them. Mm -hmm. I engage college presidents and push them to do better because I don't want students to have to continue going through what I went through in 2003, 2007, in 2018, 2019, 2020. Like I, I'm inspired by the progress that we have seen. I have been, again, I have been surprised that I'm part of the blueprint for change. And that is not that I don't think my work is valuable. It's that I'm just, I'm not a medical doctor. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm a doctor, but just not that kind. Right. Like, I didn't think that, you know, to be part of a pandemic response is just, it's it's scary. Like, I, I'm not trying to, like, for lack of a better word, because people's lives are on the line. As a social scientist, you inform policy that then, therefore, shapes people's lives. But we're talking about, hey, Tony, should I open? Hey, Tony, how should I do stipends? Mm -hmm. Right? These are direct questions. And I do, I, I make those tough choices. I put myself through the struggle of, of having to decide in that way because I care so deeply about the students who come to college, but then also the people who we lost in that, in that narrowing pool, right? How do we make ourselves more accessible to the greater, because the only way that we can be, the only way that we can be a truly great society is not just with an educated citizenry, but with a diverse educated citizenry. Mm. And so I do the work for the students because I care so deeply about them and their experience. And also selfishly because they make society, they shape it, 
right? They're going to be those who are going to be more so than me run for public office, more so than me lead um, um, lead in companies and organizations. And if I can help them get there, but then also shape their frameworks for thinking about diversity, um, inequality, and poverty, we're all better for it. Right. And you you did a TEDx summit where you know you asked people at the end what what do we take for granted and you also mentioned it here, um, but I want to know what do you think that we take for granted that needs to change immediately? Top line, if there are one to three things that you think we just we cannot continue to do, that everyone has access to basic needs. Mm-hmm. I can't underscore that enough, especially now. More and more people are dropping into poverty. More and more people are struggling to make ends meet in ways that um, has been a reality for far too many already. So that's that's top that's top of mind. Mm-hmm. I think something that we also take for granted is uh, family dynamics and who who has access to safe spaces and for what reasons. I want us to make sure that we have the support services that students have, um, students need, um, especially, I hope that every college doubles their mental health services. Absolutely. Um, at least for the next five to 10 years. And then I hope they stay at the same, and I hope that that students use them. Those are two things right now that are top of mind for me. It's like students access to basic needs and um, helping students who are not necessarily safe right now. Right. And then something I really wanted to ask you, how did we get started on the knitting? <laughs> so um, I kept asking a friend to make something for me. Like, oh, can you make me something? Can you make me something? And then for Christmas, um, they they gave me a bag. And inside mm-hmm. the bag were two um, skeins of yarn and a pair of bamboo needles. And they were like, I'm going to start this. And I want to teach you, and you can make it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there, there you go. Yeah. We're thankful to your friend for this new hobby. Yes, absolutely. Oh, wow. Okay. And then I'm really interested to actually hear your answer for this. What is your greatest fear for humanity? It's kind of like a, a variation of what we're living right now. Mm-hmm. When we are so eye-focused that we refuse to compromise for the greater good. It's not like a trolley problem where there's going to be a loss of life of you or someone you care about if you act. It's not like those kind of great sacrifices. But we have people who won't even give up, who won't postpone the opportunity to have a bottomless mimosa brunch to save their neighbor's life. Mm -hmm. That is literally where we are right now. And maybe, was it Sartre or Camus was right? Hell truly is other people because we are experiencing a callous disregard for human life that scares me. And so I think fear for me is an even greater or a more universal individualization of life where we are so disconnected from a greater good or that we can't even envision it that we don't we 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 care not about the repercussion of our actions 
right. in any in any real way. Because we're not, because in past generations, it was just like, you know, should we go to war or not? Right? Should I put my life on the line? This one was, do I really want to stay home on a Saturday? Or do I, you know, can I have my brunch, please? Can I go and you know, throw up in the bathrooms because I'm so drunk. And a lot of it was that. Like, um, people were literally saying, I have a right to get my hair done. No one's asking you, no one's trying to compromise your right to go get your your, your dye job. We're saying, you, you, like, you won't even wear a mask. Like, even if we say, okay, but you won't even wear a mask. You're so, yeah, so that, that just scares me. That, the, the greater, like, the greater, the, the, the capitalization of the I and the diminishing of the we scares the hell out of me. The rugged individualism that that we seem so set on. Yeah, the thing is about, when I think about rugged individualism, I think about that striver who believes they have to do everything on their own, right? So I can actually defend rugged individualism. Rugged individualism to me is like, I have the world on my back, I'm not going to burden other people. I'm going to do what I need to do to succeed. I'm not going to ask for help. I'm not going to do all that kind of stuff. This selfishness that we are seeing is different. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what word needs to go, what word best captures this version of individualism. Because I wonder wonder even if it's individualism. It's like almost like it's, it's a... It's an atomization of in, of, of of identity, right? You be you, you, like you you're like the standalone entity, right? You're like neon. You're like a noble gas um, with 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 immoral actions. Like you just you don't want to bond. Like you 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 don't care about anything else. You don't care about the connections. You don't care about anything, and that scares me because everyone was talking at first about that. You know the poem about the Holocaust when saying like when they came for so and so. I didn't say anything. Right. You came for so and so, but when they came for me, there was no one to say anything. We were in a. We thought that was the institution that we were in, the situation that we were in. But in reality, when it came to COVID, it was something that's even different. It was even. It was even worse. We wouldn't even take care of ourselves. Even we didn't need anyone else to do it. We had the power and the capacity to do something in in ourselves, and we refused to do it. Ah, mm. uh, goodness. Okay, well, I'm going to try and end this on a happy note. Yeah. <laughs> Not that life needs to always be happy, but mm-hmm. what is your greatest hope for humanity? It's funny. I wonder if, if we were doing this without COVID, what one of the first things that popped into my mind would have been <laughs> to trust in science and expertise. Um, though that has hurt certain communities in the past. Mm-hmm. One of my greatest hopes for humanity is truly to see the suffering in others and be moved to act. Whether it's through policy, direct action, charity, and especially activism. Whether it's through literature, research, but be called to do something about it. We don't need people just to chronicle it. We need people to actually act on it and do something to ameliorate it. That is one of my greatest aspirations for all of us. We all have our part. It's not the same, but it we all have some part to play. Absolutely. I like that. I like that a lot. 
a lot of what you said reminds me of things my mom say, and I think she's very wise. (laughs) (laughs) But Tony, thank you so much for speaking with me. I mean, I, I feel like I could go longer. I have so many more questions. So I may like be bothering on email now that I have your email. Yeah, please do. You, you, you are, and, and when the world opens back up, you are, uh, please feel free to come join us in, in Cambridge from time to time, sit in on a class and, 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 um, and continue this conversation. Absolutely. Don't scare my husband though, because I love going to school. I said I could be a forever student. Uh-huh. And he's like, could you just go earn, please? Like, and I'm like, no, why not? We can just keep going to school. I love school. Hey, you know, technically, you know, a lot of PhD programs provide a stipend. Oh, don't you worry. I've been looking. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, thank you so much. It was so lovely to speak with you. I know. Thank you for having me. I, I, I really appreciate this. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.